0: There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown?
1: Do it! One, two, three, four!
2: So much of our lives is spent with digital technology, from computers to phones to the music we listen to. But are there valuable
0: aspects of analog that we need to hang on to? I'm Greg Cott, And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Galaxy 500 co-founder Damon Krakowski joins us to talk about his book, The New Analog. We'll review the new album from the rowdy barroom rockers low-cut Connie, and Lydia Lovelace shares the song that got her hooked on Sonics. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. Welcome to Sound Opinions. Later in the show, we'll review the latest from those very analog, very rough and rowdy, low-cut Connie boys, and Lydia Lovelace will tell us about the song that shaped how she writes music. But first, we're going to talk about this issue of analog versus digital. Greg, I think that this this technology, digital technology, is now so ubiquitous, we rarely stop to think about it. I'd venture to say that everybody listening to this show is, uh, in one way or another, uh, hearing it digitally. Uh, maybe it's coming over the radio. Uh, maybe they're listening on the phone with a pair of earbuds. We are recording into a computer, and a lot of the music that we play here uh, was recorded digitally. Streaming music is exploding. Uh, Streaming services now account for uh, half of music revenue in the United States. Um, All of this digital technology certainly is convenient, but some people are asking, are we missing something that only analog can provide?
2: That's the argument being made, Jim, by Damon Krukowski. He is a musician uh, best known for his role in Galaxy 500 back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, as well as Damon and Naomi, his current band. Uh, who have been guests on Sound Opinions, and he also spends a lot of time thinking about the intersection of digital and analog. Now, he explores that very subject in his new book, The New Analog. Damon uh, recently came by our studios, and we started the conversation by defining two key concepts in his book, signal and noise.
3: The way I use noise in the book is the way an audio engineer uses noise, which is as distinct from what they call signal. So signal is anything you're trying to get across, the message that you want people to pay attention to. And noise, to an engineer, is everything else, which means everything surrounding that signal. Mm -hmm. And I think in analog space and time, just when you're with people, you're out in the world, you're always picking out the signal from the surrounding sounds, what you want to be paying attention to at that moment. And the rest may seem in your way, but in truth, if you think about it, you also derive a lot of information and a lot of meaning from the rest. So, for example, if you're on the street and you might be trying to listen to a conversation with your friend, you're simultaneously listening to a lot around there. You're listening to the traffic, you're listening to other people on the street.
0: If we were on the beach in the Bahamas doing this interview, that would be part of of the noise.
3: Exactly. The surf crashing against the, the, the shore is a classic example. It's white noise, quite literally. In analog media, we have this joining always of signal and noise. And that's a technical concern for engineers who are making records or any other kind of recording, where uh, you may decide, okay, I want to maximize my conveyance of the signal, say a singer's voice, and minimize the noise, say, for example, the breath that the singer might take Mm -hmm. or other sounds that might be bleeding into the mic around that voice. You can isolate things in digital media absolutely, so you don't have to accept a certain amount of noise around the signal that you choose. And I think this is familiar to anybody from any computer process. You don't have to be in audio to think about this. Because in, in digital, the way we use computers, you decide what you want. Say you could then you select it. Then you can select the rest of everything, highlight it, and delete it. And in mm-hmm. audio, it's essentially that same process that, yeah. that people might be familiar with from any number of computer. Well, you devices. you make
0: uh, the comparison to the iPhone. Uh, you know, in, in the book, there's three microphones on the iPhone. None of them are intended to make us be heard better. All of them are intended to take out where we are, basically isolate just what we're trying to say, and uh, from from where we are saying it.
3: Exactly, which is why it's a brilliantly engineered device that you can now speak on the phone in the most noisy environments. And that's because they have the uh, engineers for the iPhone and for cell phones in general have figured out ways to isolate just the message of your words. I think the extreme example now is if you have an iPhone where you get a voicemail and it actually transposes the words for you into text. Mm-hmm. There it's just eliminated the voice altogether, just like gave up on the voice, yeah. the sound <laughs> of the voice. Because yeah. the idea is, well, we know what the message is that you want from this device. Well, right. You want the other person's words. You want the meaning of their language. And so with tremendous confidence that I think the digital engineers have, they said okay, well then we'll just get rid of the rest. Now the problem is that the rest may be very meaningful to us. For you know, like,
0: As anyone who's ever tried to flirt on email knows, you can actually come across as doing the exact opposite and being insulting.
3: Precisely, because tone is so hard to convey mm. through just signal. Tone right. I think is something that we understand as human beings. We're very good at it. Through noise, really. Through how breathy are you being. Are you speaking to me intimately? And this is true in the in the studio as well. What engineers audio engineers call proximity effect. It's a really simple idea, which is that I'm I'm right now at a, a certain distance from this microphone I'm speaking into. As I move closer to the microphone, I'm not changing the level of my voice, but you're hearing it differently. Mm. And I think now I sound like a late night FM DJ from my childhood <laughs> uh, 1975. <laughs> like they would speak really close to the mic because it, it accentuates the, the, the lower parts of your voice. Now, as they move further away, you'll hear the higher tones of my voice and you lose that bassy quality. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to change the volume of what I'm saying, but you'll hear a different quality. Yeah. Now, a great microphone singer like Sinatra... He knew uses that to effect. And he knows that when you lean in, you start to feel more close to the singer, to the and when you back away, you feel less. When
1: I was 35 It was a very good year It was a very good year for blue-blooded girls of independent means. We'd ride in limousines. Their chauffeurs would drive when I was 35.
3: The way we understand that in in regular life is uh, again, it's a question of noise as well as a signal. So you're not just isolating the voice uh, but you are allowing the voice to be seated in a set of other sounds that add some other kind of communication to it.
0: What about this idea of thick listening? You take us through a Beach Boys recording and talk about all the unintentional noises uh, that were in court. uh, Tell us that story.
3: Right. Well, I use the Beach Boys as an example because of crowdsourcing online. All these people, untold uh, Beach Boys fanatics all over the world, listening really carefully to pet sounds and listening between the lines, as it were, to what's going on in the studio while Mm -hmm. they're recording. Things like... Brian Wilson rewinding the tape in the, st- in, in the control booth, or saying something. Uh, famous example is two horn players chatting in, in the studio while they were recording something else was being recorded. These sounds were buried into the into the tape and they went ahead and used the mix either because with them in it either because they didn't notice them or because it didn't really matter because the signal was clear enough and yeah there were these noises down there but wasn't really gonna get in the way of, of a great tune or, or also a great recording because what would happen is in the analog studio when you you turn the tape on everybody's focused, something happens and if something slightly goes wrong, you may you're kind of loath sometimes to throw the take away because you can't recreate that again, and you can't just highlight the noise and eliminate it like you could digitally now, so you had to live with it so Brian Wilson lived with a lot of inadvertent noises that are buried in the Beach Boy recordings in the book I call listening for those noises thick listening because I think you're listening past the obvious signal you're listening to the the noises that are also happening around it, and that includes if you're listening on LP, the surface noise of your own LP, but then you're also listening to the hiss on the tape that was back in the studio, and you're also just listening to the air and the environment and the horn players chatting in the corner. Yeah, And that kind of attention is a special kind of attention that I think we, um, in the analog world, are very comfortable with and well-trained for. Yes, you're listening to the song, but you're listening to it surrounded by all kinds of other information. And by that, I, I would include the, the the artwork to an LP or mm-hmm. to a CD yeah. as well.
0: You, you, you make the most eloquent defense of liner notes that I've ever read. <laughs> and, and as writers, I appreciated that. You know, we don't know who the producer was. I mean, we don't know who the third string violinist was anymore.
3: We hardly even know the members of the band. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because... Um, you know the front cover of records has made the transition to digital by being scanned and online everywhere
0: and reduced postage stamp sizes yes it's
3: it's it's sadly small but it, but at least it's there yeah. but the back cover is missing it's just gone missing <laughs> not to mention from the cd era all those incredibly extensive liner notes an example i think that i run up against all the time now is that cover songs are not clearly indicated on itunes or spotify or anywhere else mm. online in digital listening so People now come to our shows and think that we wrote the songs that we covered. Mm. And we're routinely asked that. Oh, I love that song of yours, Listen, the Snow is Falling, which is yeah. by Yoko
1: Ono. is falling everywhere
3: You can't really blame them because they haven't been given any information. And, you know, I've been asked a couple times since I wrote the book, what do I think about Neil Young's idea of Pono and the sort of rumblings about uh, making digital sound better by adding more bits to it. And to some degree, I don't don't discuss that in the book because, really, I think there's so much more other information that we've lost besides a few bits. You know, I would trade, I don't need to go to 20-bit, which is four bits more than CDs. I just want my back covers back <laughs> up the LPs. There's
0: so many, easy man to please there's to really. so much
3: information there all right, all right, all right.
0: Yeah. So it's time for me to play Devil's advocate okay. Damon we're talking to Damon Krakowski uh, veteran indie rock musician author of the new analog um so so Damon um one thing that's missing from the book is an argument uh, or or any sort of notion about the discovery of music, or just the the value. You know, you talk about how your preferred way to listen to a ball game in the book is on a crappy old transistor radio, right? Mm-hmm. All right, and I'm sorry, you know, I, all right, I went to Pure Platters in Hoboken, and I bought each Galaxy 500 album as it came out, okay? Thank you. But some kid in Montana discovers it by accident on Spotify. He or she has just discovered a piece of art. If Nine out of ten people are just happy to have and consume this art, makes their day a little better, fine. But it's always going to be only one in ten that is so curious they will discover who you are, who you were, that you're a poet, a publisher, Naomi, your, your, your significant other is a filmmaker. Oh, They're going to go deeper, right? Isn't that how it always was? I mean, I consumed every fanzine article written about Galaxy 500, but other people just said they heard it on college radio and said, oh, it's kind of cool.
3: I hear you, Jim, and I, I totally agree. I think actually digital has made, um, made a, a better world for listening in a lot of ways, and that's one of them. I mean, the way that our music can spread around the world free, cheaply, and be really available in places we could never dream of, to me, that's an ideal. I mean, that's actually a dream. We always wanted our music to be available outside our own circle. And then really, I think, no musician doesn't want that because yeah. when you pick up an instrument, it's to
0: to share. It's to it's not your... completed until the person hears it. Exactly,
3: and I think that's true for so much art. And so, in that regard, I am I am uh, all for it. I'm not anti digital at all, and I I use uh, digital files all the time. I listen to them too. It's also enabled us to travel places we could never have traveled before. Mm-hmm. We we toured China last year, yeah. and it was amazing because obviously we don't have a record distributor in China, mm-hmm. uh, but People knew the music just because they have access to online. But
2: what was interesting to me, Damon, about what you're saying is, you know, to follow up on Jim's point, you know, there's this sort of proud dinosaur mentality. You know, I would talk to Ian Mackay or Steve Albini and and they would say, you know— Back in my day, you know, it was the old, man, when I, was your, when I was your age kid, I used to walk five miles to school in the snow.
1: <laughs> and it's the old, you know, to we,
2: used to, record. we used to make our singles by hand. We used to buy the cardboard yeah. and we used to fold them together and glue them and then put them in the stores. Now it's like you can go to your bedroom and, and basically make a record in a day and have it distributed around the world. It's too easy. You know, a, a 21st century kid is going to look at you and laugh. Like, you got to be kidding, old man. Uh, where do you stand on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the ease of digital is uh, can be really wonderful. It can also be very seductive in the sense that uh, you can fall into patterns of cliche uh, in a different way than an analog, because you can end up relying on presets, for example, to your tools. I think part of what I wanted to to achieve in the book, as sort of a conversation starter, is to to make people think about what they're what they're surrendering to these companies and who's making some of these decisions. Mm. To go back to that idea of signal and noise, in the digital realm, someone else has had to decide what was signal and what was noise in any given situation because they've programmed it or they've made the platform to highlight signal and they've eliminated the noise. In analog, you always have the choice. You're always shifting your attention and you're always making that decision and I think we're really good at making that decision. So why have Facebook make it for us? Mm. Why have Facebook decide what posts we're interested in? You know, just put it all out there. Now, when digital is used in a more open way, where the information is freely available and and unsorted by corporations, then I think it's the most fantastic gift and I I fully embrace it. Anyway, there's no turning back, there's no choice. So we have to embrace it. And I just think we need to be a little bit more alert to what we may be surrendering Without real compensation of mm-hmm. any kind, either meaning or financial, in some cases.
2: What do you tell the kid who uh, listens to all their music on uh, through streaming? Uh, convenience and portability trumps all. What 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 are you? What are they missing? What do you? What do you? You know, you're missing something essential, or do you say, "Have at it, kid. I can't. I can't tell you yeah, what to I, do."
3: I would say there, that. I listen to streaming too. I think that I get something different from streaming, and I get mm. something different from records. I get something different from CDs too, for that matter. I don't feel that any of the formats uh, are um, should eliminate the others. There's a lot of music in the world that is also made now, currently, to be heard streaming. I saw a great interview uh, with a producer who's worked with Frank Ocean, who was talking about how he mixes to you know these beautiful speakers that cost tens of thousands of dollars way beyond anything I've ever had access to
1: a
4: tornado
1: flew around my room before you came excuse the mess it, made. it rain in much like my eyes
0: don't but
3: then after he's done that then he mixes and he listens on his powerbook speakers straight <laughs> off
0: the power book as bad as it gets yeah.
3: yeah.
1: A tornado flew around my room before you came excuse the mess i made it usually doesn't rain in southern california much like arizona my eyes don't shed tears but baby boy when i'm thinking about you who no 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 I've been so
3: i wouldn't about say you. i wouldn't oh, say to anybody you're not hearing the music which gets back to why the number of bit rates doesn't really matter to me that much I would just say be aware of what aspects you're hearing of the music and what you might be losing. Mm. And then try it some other way and see what aspects you might hear then yeah. and what you might be losing. I do, like a lot of people right now, I have gone back to a lot of my vinyl collection. But I'm also buying CDs like crazy because, boy, are they cheap right now. Use yeah. CDs, All those box sets I couldn't afford in the, in uh, the 2000s. Pretty man i'm just vacuuming them up cuz they've got the liner notes <laughs> <laughs> and the sound is great you know when, once people got a hold of How to master for cd it was yeah. amazing so i think a lot. there's
0: going to be a cd revival the way there there is obviously a vinyl revival happening
3: i kind of doubt it cuz they're not beautiful objects No. And, you know I, I and they're just plastic and they do look and feel like junk yeah uh, but um, it's a little bit perverse right now but i am buying them for the booklets, almost, almost, wow. mostly. Well, they're
0: easier to carry.
3: Yeah, nothing's as easy to carry as nothing. You no, know, wh- which is true. We're,
0: we're moving to a post-possession world, Yeah. or at the very best, everybody's going to have that one IKEA bookshelf where they have the hundred vinyl albums that define their life, the two dozen hardcover books. That's my, you know, and I don't think this is a bad thing. We got to stop killing this planet, please. You know, but, but everybody should have the one Ikea bookshelf.
3: That kind of sense of like investment in in a, in a, a piece of analog media. If you mm-hmm. buy a book, even if you don't read it, I had a great conversation with a, a used bookseller here at the Fine Arts Building yesterday. He was saying, you know, even if you don't read a book you buy, it's looking at you from the shelf saying, <laughs> yeah. you, you could read this. <laughs> yeah. The unread book is something that you're not reading, but you could. And that's different than the streaming thing where you're only getting what you're listening to. But you have a relationship with your own records and books. You use them. Mm -hmm. They bear marks of your use as you're discussing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that deepens the relationship, uh, if you can talk about a relationship with an object, but it deepens the meaning of the object for you Mm. because it represents time spent and also change time. You know, there are lots of records in my collection where one side meant more to me than the other, and it's gone through different phases over time. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that I think you need a physical object to really have that, mm. to, to bear the traces of, of time and of your engagement with it. And that's, that's something that I would say to the kid who is relying on digital. It's like, that's great. I'd do it too. And you've got this incredible tool in front of you. You can reach any music in the world. Go for it. But also think about what it is to have something right in front of you and what, what, what else you get from that. And that might give you insight into the digital stuff and what you might not be getting from it. So I mean, the
0: best of both worlds. Be aware absolutely. that two worlds exist. Yeah,
3: because they do. That's the reality. Yeah. We're, we're using both all the time.
2: Mm. We've been talking to Damon Krukowski, longtime indie musician and songwriter and the author of The New Analog. Damon, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show again.
3: Oh, I love the show. I'm so happy to be here.
2: After a break, we're going to spend a little more time on this idea of thick listening, and later in the show, we review the new album from Low Cut Connie. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
0: Sound opinions. I'm Jim Deerga, and my partner is Greg Cott. We have been talking about the value of analog. We just heard Damon Krakowski discuss the concept that he calls "thick listening," the idea that in analog recordings there is extra noise or information within the song beyond the obvious signal that makes for A better listening experience. The example we heard earlier was here today from the Beach Boys Pet Sounds, where the process of analog recording resulted in mistaken vocal tracks, studio uh, commands, chatter from the producer, and even two horn players having a conversation uh, in front of the mics. All of that is audible, but only if you listen really Closely And taken as a whole, it gives you some idea of what the recording process was like. You feel like you're in the room that day. We wanted to find a few more examples where this extra noise or information enhances the signal or the song. Thick listening. Greg, you're up first.
2: Jim, when we were talking to uh, Damon about this concept, the first song instantly came to mind was the Flamingo's I Only Have Eyes For You. I always think about a song that puts me in a specific place every time I hear it. And, and, and this is the best example that I can think of. I constantly return to this song. I love it. I hear new things in it every time I listen to it. It was recorded in October of 1958. It was a jazz standard. It had originally been a part of a Broadway play in the 30s. It was covered by many artists, many jazz singers. The Flamingos recorded it on an album of covers, which really is one of the, the great albums of, of that doo-wop era out of which they came, uh, a record called Flamingo Serenade. It was not originally even issued as a single, but it became the standard by which the Flamingos were really measured and became their biggest hit. I think one of the reasons it has become so timeless is because of the sound. That thick listening is is rewarded immensely when you get into this record over and over again, it reminds me of a very sultry southern evening or a, very, a summer evening for sure. Uh, humid. The group was out of, out of Chicago, um, so they must have experienced some of those humid Chicago hmm. uh, summers. Yeah, we and, know them. And I think they evoke it very well. I can feel the humidity in this song. and And why is that? I I think a lot of it has to do with the reverb that they put on, which was obviously a a signal effect. They intentionally were doing that. But in the process of creating this particular signal, the noise, quote-unquote, around it is so critical to the song, the way they sing and shape each one of those words. And the other thing that is remarkable um, is the way that Terry Johnson one of the group members shaped the arrangement he's the guy playing those little guitar figures in the song that are sort of commenting on each line and then there's this kind of throwaway almost nonsense phrase in in the hands of a lot of doo-wop groups it probably would have been almost like a uh, almost a comical thing Dubop Shibop, you mm-hmm. know, like you hear that in a lot of duop songs, and it's almost like a cliche. But here it has this almost haunting quality. So there's there's a sense of you can feel the room in this recording in a way that transcends every other version of the song. They were recording in an environment where the vocalists were all recording together. They were playing in a room together, and while the the arrangement was extremely meticulous there was just a sense of depth to the, to the arrangement that I don't think anybody else is you, you couldn't get it through a pure digital recording. Mm. But I not only feel the room, I feel this almost otherworldly place that they're recording it in. Um, so here are The Flamingos, I Only Have Eyes For You, from 1958 on Sound Opinions.
1: My love must be a kind of blind love. But you don't Are the stars out? Do <laughs> I don't know if this cloudy she or bright. I only have eyes for
2: you, The Flamingos, I only have eyes for you.
0: Jim, what is your, uh, First example of thick listening. You were talking about a song that evoked a world. My first song does that as well, but adds another element that Damon brought to thick listening, which is that the information on a great album cover, um, you know, is part of the listening experience in the analog world. I set off the bell on this show very often by mentioning this name, but it's rare that I actually get to play anything by him. I'm, of course, going to Brian Eno. 1975, the album Another Green World. Right there in the title, A World. He's creating an oral experience, an oral tour of this place that exists only in your imagination, the space between the headphones. Thick listening-wise, I loved to sit for years listening to the vinyl album and and following Eno's liner notes. They're minimal, as his music and, and, and everything from him often is, but they were so evocative. He would describe himself as playing... Castanet's guitar, right? Or, or Robert Fripp does a solo called Wimshurst guitar. Now, uh, he, he has people like Robert Fripp and Phil Collins contributing to this album, but the song Somber Reptiles is all Eno, 100% Eno. He says, uh, on the liner notes, he played Hammond organ, guitars, synthetic and Peruvian percussion, electric elements, and unnatural sounds. So the amount of time I spent as young Jim listening for for what is Peruvian percussion, okay, and what unnatural sounds, well, they're all there. This is an instrumental. So you listen to this song, and you are suddenly in the tar pit with the brontosaur that is sinking slowly below the depths, right? There is this (laughs) prehistoric, murky, world that is created by the sounds, and, uh, you know, the sounds in Island Studio, uh, you know, was the biggest believer, I think this is very much in line with Damon's thick listening, uh, of leaving happy accidents in. You play a wrong note, that was part of that time and place. The air condition kicks on, somebody walks across the studio, you couldn't have planned it any better, right? So there are layers and layers and layers to what at first sounds like a very simple song. I, you know, I'm not a hi-fi geek, but this is a song that is well served <laughs> by thick listening and analog. Brian Eno, Sober Reptiles on Sound Opinions. know, Ding, Somber Reptiles from another Green World. God, I love that album. Well, it's on my arm here. Yeah. What you do you do? <laughs>
2: we've, we've, you, we've heard you like that guy. All right. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know you do too. But You're I'm, just I'm jealous.
2: A I'm a fan of those records I know you too. Are. Uh, those are fantastic records. So the track I want to play next is the direct opposite of the one I'd played previously. The flamingos. I only have eyes for you. That is dripping in reverb. You can practically. Feel the sweat rolling down their brows on a hot summer evening. Uh, Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend, the title track from his 1991 album, is Dry as a Bone. No reverb at all. No effects pedals on the guitars. uh, No synthesizers on the record. Uh, There's only one piano part on the entire record. We're going to record the whole thing on 24-track tape. So the signal part of this recording was very specific about what Matthew Sweet and his co-producer and drummer, Fred Mayer, wanted. Now, Fred Mayer had previously worked with Lou Reed on his great early 80s recordings. And through that, Mayer knew Robert Quine, the great guitar player, uh, formerly of uh, Richard Hell and the Mm. Voidoids in the 70s, worked with Reed, obviously, brought him in as part of the recording. Two main guitarists on this record. Quine and, and uh, Richard Lloyd of Television, the other great '70s uh, guitar band uh, contemporaries of of Richard Hell and the Voidoids, uh, on on the girlfriend track, it is Quine who plays the bulk of the guitar, and where the noise part of this equation comes in is that even though Sweet had a very specific idea of how he wanted this record to sound, he wanted to leave room for accidents. He wanted to leave room for the noise to inform how the final arrangement was going to work. So he created this demo, and he Quine initially, the idea was, okay, I'm going to play along with the demo and try to replicate what you did, and Quine was getting increasingly frustrated with his attempts to do that. So he ended up just playing this Shrapnel busting noise solo <laughs> sounded like a trash compactor eating a truck or something. Yeah, yep. um, they decided let's leave that in. That's kind of mm. cool. Mm-hmm. And and they left in the bad guitar solo that Quine played. This has nothing to do with what was originally played on it's the deck. It's noise that became signal. Noise became signal and. Because of an accident, they loved what they were hearing over the phones, and they allowed it to happen. There, there was a uh, part that he sort of introed where he would just hang on a note for a couple of minutes at a time. And normally you would just cut that out. He's just kind of getting warmed up. He's leading into the song but that's not going to make the final cut. Well, they said, no, no, keep that in. That sets the tone for the violence that's about to happen. Mm. So Quine gets increasingly violent as the song is occurring. Mare gets into it. His drumming becomes increasingly dynamic. And, and Sweet wanted to retreat from the, the drum machines and the very meticulous arrangements that he'd been using on his earlier records. And with Girlfriend, he succeeded totally in sort of balancing the signal part the whole idea of this meticulous arrangement with the idea that accidents should be allowed and allow the uh the playing of the musicians to inform uh, the final arrangement here's matthew sweet's girlfriend on sound
1: i didn't know nobody and then I saw you need to
2: With girlfriend, the great Robert Quine, the, the late, great late great Robert Quine on guitar. Uh, Jim, what do you got next?
0: Um, Greg, you know, I am going to talk about a song by The Flaming Lips. I wrote uh, a biography, uh, Staring at Sound, about this band. A lot of great stories about the way they made these records. Uh, in a priest driven ambulance, the 1989. Uh, First, I think, Unqualified Masterpiece by The Flaming Lips. Many people forget that record. This is the earlier band. Jonathan Donahue, who would go on to form Mercury Rev, is a member of the band. Um, They were... Just about to quit. They were out of money. They had been touring America for years. Nobody wanted them. Nobody loved them. Uh, You know, a hardcore, 50 people in every city, you know, in every small club they played. Uh, They were going to go out with a bang, though. They had met this crazy guy who was at the State University of New York in Fredonia named Dave Fridman, we must mention him a dozen times a year. He's one of the most demand, in-demand producers in America today. But at this point, he's just learning how to use this recording technology. He's going to school, and and he needs a band uh, in the summer at night as the experimental band. So the Flaming Lips go up to Fredonia and spend uh, from Oklahoma and spend a whole uh, summer there, and they are consistently pushing the envelope to get to a thicker sort of listening ultimately they are they are trying everything they've ever wanted to try in the recording studio, Wayne had written a song uh, that he wasn't quite happy with. It was a little acoustic ditty called There You Are. And he said, and I quote, it it was a little too Dan Fogelberg. (laughs) So they decided, well, well, let's take it outside. Let's record in the median of the New York State Thruway. You're from upstate (laughs) New York, right? One of the busiest highways in America. (laughs) And let's record on the median at night under a full eclipse. This made sense to them yeah, for some reason. Well, yeah. The idea of recording in the middle of the highway uh, fell apart because, and I quote Michael Ivins, the bass player, uh, the trucks kept running over the microphone cords. <laughs> so they had to go across the street in the back of a Topps supermarket, and they sat on a concrete retaining wall, and Friedman ran a dozen microphones. Uh, Ivins and, and Wayne Coyne and Jonathan Donahue were playing acoustic guitar, uh, but but mostly they wanted ambient sound. So you still hear the trucks whooshing by on the throughway, uh, right behind them you hear the crickets uh, I swear you can kind of just hear the garbage in the parking lot almost <laughs> you know there is very much a sense of place they wanted this noise the ambience of the recording every bit as key as the melody and lyrics of the song there you are uh, Jesus song number seven the flaming lips subtitled it from in a priest driven ambulance in 1989 on sound opinions
1: There you are, and you stand in the rain, and the rain fills your brain, and it makes you think that God was a fogger when he made this town. To be anything all.
0: The flaming lips, there you are, when the flaming lips still were the flaming lips, Greg. And now we want to hear from you, the listeners.
2: Tell us how analog listening is part of your life. Call and leave a message on our hotline at 888 859 1800 or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Coming up, we review the latest album from Low Cut Connie, and singer-songwriter Lydia Lovelace tells us about the song that got her hooked on Sonics. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. <laughs> ¶¶ Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigadas, and you're listening to a little bit of the new low-cut Connie record, a track called uh, Death and Destruction. Cheerful ditty. Yes, from uh, the fourth studio album, Dirty Pictures Part 1. They promise a a Part 2 later on. Uh, This is a band out of Philadelphia formed in 2010 um, Adam Wiener, the the main guy in the band, had been kicking around the uh, bar band, lounge band scene. It has been a bit of a revolving door, but Wiener is the one constant. Uh, Wiener and his trusty upright piano, Chandra, which uh, several hundred pounds of Chandra that is dragged from gig to gig. Uh, the band is defined by that sound of... Adam Weiner pounding on those keys. Uh, and it's a rock and roll bar band. They make no apologies. Apparently, a big favorite of Barack Obama, our former yeah. president, who uh, had him on a playlist. He had uh, one of their songs, Boozophilia. On a playlist. This is not a band that shows up on the commercial charts, but uh, trust me, they play hundreds of gigs, uh, Uh it seems like every year, and uh, they are one of the best live bands in the world right now. Again, fourth album. Here's a track from Dirty Pictures Part One. It is called Revolution Rock and Roll on Sound Opinions.
1: I used to be a soldier, now I'm getting old. Start to feel so lazy. Starts to make me crazy.
0: Revolution Rock and Roll by low-cut Connie from album number four, Dirty Pictures, part one. You know, Greg, I'm going to go to the 2000 Cameron Crowe film, Almost Famous. Uh, Jason Lee plays that incredibly silly, over-the-top cliched lead singer of the band Stillwater, uh, <laughs> Jeff Beebe. And he's he's trying to sell himself to the young reporter. And he says, you know, I get people off. I find the one guy who isn't getting off, and I make him get off. <laughs> that is Adam Weiner. Adam <laughs> Weiner, how much of it is a character and how much is him? I don't care. It's so entertaining. Take me for the ride, baby. Um, this is not to say that there is not substance in Low Cut Connie. Part of this is barroom shtick. Loudmouth guy at the end of the bar, mouthing off right to a great groove, but a lot of melody and A message. You know, Revolution Rock and Roll, I think what uh, Wiener is singing about is two things. Number one, the political times we're in. They surface subtly, not explicitly, in many of the songs on this album, but also a mindset. What is wrong with you? Staying home at night, watching something on Netflix. Come on out, have a beer and a shot, and boogie, man. And the cover... Of controversy by Prince on this album is so perfect. I I really think that the Purple Wonder would have enjoyed it because <laughs> it has nothing to do with Prince's controversy, and yet they somehow they're strong enough as a band to make a song that great and a sound that signature their own. a buy-it record as far as I'm concerned.
2: Well, you mentioned uh, their cover of Controversy and that, that speaks to their bar band roots. I mean, this is the, the kind of band that can play pretty much, uh, you know, a mini history of rock and roll every night they're on stage. You know, there's a little bit of soul, there's a little bit of blues, there's a little bit of early rock and roll. You know, none of this techno stuff for these guys. This is pretty much, you know, bleached in, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s
0: sounds. And and the rawer, the better. They would, however, very much like to have a burlesque troupe on stage (laughs) with them while they're doing this. I mean, these are not
2: young guys anymore. It's not that they're like old men, but these guys have been around. And they're speaking to, I think, a certain area of adulthood where you've been sort of working this not so great, maybe even a dead-end kind of job for a long time, your prospects are fading that you're ever going to be, you know, the big guy on the block or the big guy in town like you thought you were going to be when you were Successful. a teenager. How do you define yeah. success? And and at the same time, you you still want to live life strong, you know? Mm-hmm. There's that moment on Friday when you just want to rip it up, as he says. Come on, children, rip it up, he says on Revolution <laughs> Rock and Roll. And we, he pulls it off. That's we, the thing. We kind of need these words right now. Yeah. And, and as you said, there's sort of on the margins of this, there's, there's a political message, but it's not in your face. A song like Death and Destruction, I mean, we're talking about a, a world teetering on the brink of disaster. So the whole idea of having Having this blowout while stuff isn't, you know, so happy around you doesn't mean you cannot continue to live your life to the fullest. And that's a powerful and necessary message. This isn't a substitute for their live show. I mean, you definitely got to see this band in concert to get the full low-cut Connie effect. But I would say of their four albums, this is the one that comes closest to matching the energy of of one of those shows and in some ways if you think about it it's sort of framed like a concert it has a sort mm-hmm. of beginning middle and end with that song at the end forever that kind of closing time requiem you know uh, which you know kind of harkens to his cabaret roots So I dig it it's a, it's a vibe record for me so Dig it brother I dig it. That's my Adam Weiner homage.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Greg, every once in a while, we like to ask an artist to tell us about the song that got them interested in music the track that really made them want to go out and beat on those drums, write a song, pick up a guitar, whatever it was. It's a feature we call Hooked on Sonics. And today, we hear from old country singer-songwriter Lydia Lovelace. Here she is talking about the song that got her hooked on Sonics.
4: I'm Lydia Lovelace, and the song that changed my life is Put It On You by The Fever. The Fever are no longer a band, but I think I was about 14 when I discovered them. And they were a New York band that uh, would occasionally come through Columbus, Ohio, where I was growing up. I remember, I think it was my older sister was listening to that song, in the next room one day and I thought it was John Lennon. like this really sort of darkly, scarily, poppy, poetic mess that really kind of turned me on in this weird musical way. I had just started playing bass in a band with my sisters, and I mean, I think a lot about the song made me that much more excited about like actually playing in a band and writing really good bass lines, because I feel like every part of the song is so well executed. Like the guitar sounds like a keyboard and the vocals are insanely good. And the bass was this really like choppy, yet melodic backbone of the entire song. So that made me really excited about like, maybe I could actually do something really cool and not just play one note for the duration of the song. At that point in my life I wasn't really writing songs and I think a lot about the song that affected me was that the lyrics to that song weren't really something that I had heard in music up till that point. It was more like reading a book of poetry to me than, like, listening to someone try to rhyme or fit something in. It just, it really clicked that I could go a lot deeper in that sense, too. There's just so much desperation in the song. And, you know, the whole record kind of has references to burning and flames and uh, sort of miserable, <laughs> unrequited love, so to me it's about desperately loving someone who treats you like crap which is kind of how i've made a career for myself at this point maybe that's why maybe that's why it affected me so much or maybe that's why i'm so intrigued by that sort of angle hopefully i can be relatable to some desperately sad teenager <laughs> the way that song was for me I know where you're-
0: That was Lydia Lovelace talking about The Fevers' Put It On You, the song that got her hooked on Sonics. Greg, what's on the show next week? Next week, Jim, uh,
2: we have an artist named Jenny Vall who writes very deeply personal and deeply
0: disturbing music. As always, Greg, Sound Opinions was produced by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chong, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras.
2: Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New
1: messages.
2: This is Brian Phillips from McDonough, Georgia. I wanted to call in about your. Fictional bands show which was thoroughly fascinating. Thank you very much for that. Growing up as a child of the seventies, I grew up on and around a really good time for fictional bands. Lancelot Lincoln, the Evolution Revolution, that Albert and the Cosby kids, Heaven knows who did that music, and even the Globetrotters, Harlem Globetrotters, the Hanna Barbera show, the Globetrotters album had members of the Clovers and the Drifters as part of the quote unquote Harlem Globetrotters band.
0: But uh, my favorite fictional band that
2: uh, is not very well covered is The Beagles. Not The Beatles, but The Beagles. It was produced by the same people that made Underdog, and it featured two dogs and their unscrupulous manager that would try all sorts of weird publicity stuff so the band would get more publicity. But the music is fantastic. Thanks so much for a great show. Can't wait to hear more. Take
0: care.
1: Looking for the beagles Looking high and low the Eagles Know is where the Beagles go Riding on a busted bubble To wherever there's some trouble That's where the Beagles go
0: My name is Nick Bertelson. I'm calling from Omaha, Nebraska. Being a kid of the 90s, I personally loved the fake band The Beats from the Nickelodeon series, Doug. I
1: need more La
0: I think I probably sing I Need More Allowance at least once a week because who doesn't? I really appreciate the show. It was awesome. Hey there, my name is Robbie live
2: in Chicago. I uh, wanted to shout out one of my favorite fictional musicians of all time, the rapper L.T.B., who uh, did the rap in Michael Jackson's Black or White. Vice magazine uncovered who this guy was, and LTB stands for Levi's Beaver. He never rapped on anything else again.
3: He helped co-write the song.
1: Protection the gangs, clubs, nations, causing grief in human relations. It's a turf war on a global scale. I'd rather hear both sides of the tale. See,
2: it's not about races, just places, faces. Where your blood comes from is where your face is. i seen the bright get dull. I'm not gonna spend my life being a color.
0: You know, Macaulay Culkin does the raps in the
2: video, so I was like, hey. I could be a rapper one day. <laughs> anyway, um, I want to resurrect LTV and have a region tour. All right. Thanks, guys.
0: Hi, Jim, Greg, and Evan. This is Mark in Chicago. Just wanted to say thank you so much for the C.W. McCall. Retrospective, it was amazing. My uh, recollection of that time was uh, watching C.W. McCall on the Mike Douglas show perform "Convoy," and when you guys mentioned it as a fake band, right away I thought, "No, not." I saw that guy. I saw that guy on TV. It was the strangest weird hybrid of uh, pre-recorded CD talking and this guy leaning into the microphone doing all the voices. It
2: was the dark of the moon on the 6th of June in a Kenworth pulling logs, cab over Pete with a reefer on and a Jimmy hauling hogs.
0: I'm really not sure what I was watching, but I'm so glad that you guys
1: looked into it a little bit further and I have a little bit better understanding of it. Anyways, it was a great time and uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks.